Luke chapter 20, begin reading at verse 9. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send another slave and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send a third and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whom it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Amen. Well, Jesus here is in his final week. We uh, saw from a couple Sundays ago, Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the last time. Even though uh, boys and girls, young people here in this church, we have several more chapters to go. We have to do Chapter 20, 21, 22, 23 and 24. But all of those chapters really are dealing with the last week of Jesus's life and earthly ministry. And so it's important for us to understand just how significant uh, these last chapters are. Why would Luke and the other gospel writers spend such inordinate amount of time on Jesus's last week? You think about Jesus lived here for 33 years and yet only one week out of those 33 years is so much attention given to our Savior. And the reason for that is because we're coming to the climax of Jesus's life and ministry. It, it was for this purpose Jesus came into the world to die for our sins and to be raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. Yes, Jesus is a good teacher. Yes, um, he is an example for us, but it's far more. We have to understand what is most important about the person and the work of Jesus Christ is his substitutionary death and his resurrection for us. If we miss that, we miss everything really about Jesus. And this is where so many mainliners go wrong. So many those who are given to liberal persuasions, they go wrong because they view Jesus chiefly as like a philosopher, as a teacher, um, much in they might view uh, uh, others as a type of uh, important men with wisdom. But this is what makes Jesus Christ unique as the son of God 
very God of very God. He, he becomes a man for the purpose of living a righteous life that no other man could live, no matter how much wisdom they had. No one else lived a perfectly good and righteous life. And nobody can substitute that life in our place. And that's why Luke is spending so much time here in this final week. Now, in this parable of the vineyard, Jesus is going to tell us several important things. And what I'm going to do is, I'm first of all going to introduce the parable to us. And we're going to explain it, kind of have a flyover. And then there are three things I want to draw particularly to our attention. And those three things come towards the end, but let me give them to you here up front. Number one, Christ tells us of the destruction of the vineyard is coming. He prophesies the destruction of the vineyard. In number two, elevation of the cornerstone. He tells us also really about himself. He is going to be elevated after his sufferings have come to an end. And then number three, that he tells us we need to fall on that stone, which is Christ himself. So D, E and F, destroy the vineyard, elevate the cornerstone, fall on the stone ourselves. And so let's begin by talking about the parable, because we need to understand. Now, I was a little disappointed reading one of the commentaries yesterday, and I was just disappointed that so many commentaries, they get into the details. And I think they really miss the overarching message here. And what is the message? The, the message really isn't hard to get. I don't understand why this one particular commentary couldn't seem to really get it. The Bible has been speaking about God's people as a vineyard throughout the Old Testament. Um, all the major prophets, except one, use this parable, use, use the analogy of the Old Testament church being a vine or a vineyard. Isaiah does it. Uh, Jeremiah does it. Ezekiel makes several references to it. Even in the minor prophets, Hosea does it as well. And, and it, it, the idea is that God took his people and he redeems them out of Egypt and he plants them into the promised land. You can read about it in Psalm 80 or sing about it as a family in Psalm 80 as well. So there are all these places. And I think that's why in other Gospels we realize that the audience understood that Jesus was speaking of these things about them. They understood Jesus was really directing this parable at the Sanhedrin, at the Pharisees, at the Sadducees, at the scribes, at the high priests. Jesus is, is directing this. Now, what does this all mean? What is this vineyard? Well, the vineyard is, is God's people. God has planted a vineyard and he expects the vineyard to produce good fruit. God has planted his church in the Old Testament among the, the Israelites as sons and daughters of Abraham. And I think in particular... In this parable, we can even hone it more narrowly to the people of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, I think, is the real vineyard in this parable. That the, the, the vineyard has walls. And this would have been familiar to Jesus's original audience. Now, what happens in this uh, account, boys and girls? And I want you young children to know this parable, too. OK, so I want you kids to hear me uh, Right now, Jesus is saying 
that God has planted this vineyard. The, the man here is the Lord in our parable. The man plants a vineyard and he goes away on a journey. And he it's not saying God ever leaves his people, but he's saying here he gives his people this beautiful inheritance and he expects to see fruit from it. He expects to see produce growing here. And so when the occasion arises, he sends a slave, he sends a servant. Now, who are these slaves or servants? Well, I think these servants are the prophets that over time, what did God do to see fruit among his people? He sent the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all the rest. And there are even more prophets than are in our Bible. God sent many prophets who never had a book put into the Bible. And God would send these prophets to do what? To preach the word. That is, they were to preach the word and the word was to have Results, namely the fruit of the spirit. The, the fruit was to be the produce. The fruit of the spirit was to be the produce. Lives of godliness, lives of faith in the Lord. That's what that's what the man of the parable sought. And that is what God sought in his church. But what happens? Well, they abuse the prophets, don't they? The man in the parable, he sends a servant And the guy is beat up. And he thinks, well, let me try this again. Show them mercy. And he sends another one. The same thing happens to them. And then sends a third. And so we see the patience of God in in this, don't we? We see that God is long-suffering. We see that the Lord is slow to anger. He is abounding in richness richness and and kindness towards us. And yet, um, he finally, Jesus tells us in this parable, says that the Man will send the son. And this, of course, clearly is a reference to Jesus Christ. The man in the parable is God, the father, and he is sending his only begotten son among his people. And your mind might go to John chapter one in the prologue. Remember that we are told that Christ came among his own and his own did not receive him or recognize him. And this is a picture of. Of the father sending Jesus Christ among his people. And of course they treat him shamefully. Notice here it says in verse 15 that they threw him out of the vineyard. And I think this is actually a reference to where Jesus will be crucified. That, that, the, that the prophets will, will, will die. They go to Jerusalem to die. But they will take this particular one and put him outside the walls of Jerusalem. On the hill of Golgotha. And they kill him. Now, Jesus asks us a question here and Jesus comes to the application. And that's where we derive the three points of the sermon today. Before we come to the Lord's table, I want us to think about the three points that Jesus is making about this parable. The three applications here for that original audience. But then I also want to make them to us as well here in the 21st century. Notice what Jesus says In the second sentence of verse 15, he says, what then? After telling the parable and explaining it, he says, what then will the owner do, uh, owner of the vineyard do to them? And he answers in three ways. So the first we see is he's going to destroy the vineyard. That's in verse 16. 
Secondly, we see that he's going to elevate Christ, the cornerstone that's in verse 17. And then thirdly, we're going to see the call of the gospel to fall on Christ. And there will be an invitation for the audience to fall on Christ. Now, let's look at each of these here. First of all, verse 16, the destruction. Jesus says he will come and destroy these vine growers. The man in the parable will come and he will wipe out this vineyard. And so Jesus here is prophesying what will happen to the city of Jerusalem for their rejection of Jesus Christ. We're going to see this again when we get further into chapter 21. Jesus is going to prophesy again the destruction. You remember the story. They're in the temple and the disciples are marveling. Remember, these guys are from Galilee. So they're in the big city and they're marveling at, at the stones and they're like, Lord, this temple is so beautiful. It's how in the world could they have built something so magnificent? And Jesus says, oh, you know, by the way, what not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And they don't even know what to say. You know, in fact, the scriptures tell us it's, it's not until they get back outside the city and they go back up to the Mount of Olives that they kind of pull Jesus aside here and say, oh, about what you said down there, um, you know, we would like we have a question. When are these things going to take place and what's the sign of your coming? And and so Jesus gets into that. So there are several places where Jesus explains to them, which would have been shocking to the ears, because remember, to, to the Jews, the temple is eternal. The, the, the idea that the temple would be gone and destroyed is just unfathomable to them, because this is where the name of God dwells. This is where God is. Is his Shekinah glory is in the Holy of Holies. God is is there above the cherubim in the inner sanctuary of the temple. And the idea that this temple could be destroyed is the furthest thing from their mind. And, and yet here Jesus is saying that God is going to destroy the vineyard. Because of the wickedness, because of the evil, because of the. The opposition to God and God's son, God is going to bring a calamity. You know, some not probably in this generation, but we know that there were some in the Old Testament who viewed the first temple this way. Remember that it was almost a superstitious thing. That, that God would never bring a judgment against us because the temple is here. So long as we are physically in proximity to the temple, we are safe, no matter how ill our conduct is. And there are some people who have that unfortunate view today as well in the church. They say, no matter how bad my conduct is, I am safe because I walked an aisle. I signed a pledge card. I made a commitment when I was in camp. I raised my hand. I repeated the prayer after a pastor. I'm safe. Even though there's no fruit in my life. Even though I haven't darkened the door in three years of a church. This is a very dangerous place to be. And unfortunately, there are too many in the South who are in that very situation. They have a misunderstanding. When Jesus came to save us and die for our sins, he expected to see fruit in our lives. That's the testimony that we really have been saved by the Lord. If there is no fruit, it is good for nothing but to be cut down and cast into the fire. That was the message of John the Baptist and Jesus alike. 
You shall know them by their fruits. And where there is no fruit, it is good for nothing but to make a bonfire out of it this fall. If it will ever get chilly. (laughs) You look for the dead wood, for the fire, for the campfire. Jesus says that there is going to be a day of judgment on this particular vineyard, on Jerusalem. A day of judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. And you notice they understood what Jesus was saying. Notice when they heard it, look at verse 16 at the end, it says they said, may it never be. They understood what Jesus was saying in this parable. They were horrified that Jesus would make such a proclamation. May it never be. God forbid that God should destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And yet that is what Jesus Said would happen, and that indeed is what happened. Forty years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Roman general Titus came into the city of Jerusalem and did indeed destroy all of Jerusalem and the temple, and it has never been rebuilt these last 2,000 years. There is but the remnant of the Wailing Wall, where, you know, boys and girls, sometimes you'll turn on the news and they'll show pictures of Jews um, at this. Wall, and they're all facing the wall, and they're all kind of doing this motion, and they're and they're praying at the wall. What are they doing? They're praying at the remnant of the temple. That's all that's left of the temple. The temple has been destroyed, even as as Jesus prophesied that it would be destroyed. And the reason you have to understand for the destruction of the temple is that Christ is has rebuilt His temple. You have to understand. Jesus said, "Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days." And John tells us. That he was speaking of his own body. And you have to understand this redemptive historical shift to get it. And unfortunately, a lot of our friends, our Christian friends, well-meaning Christian friends, dispensational friends, they're Bible believers, but they really miss this point. And they have this expectation that a physical temple needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That is not the teaching of the scripture. The scripture teaches that Christ is the new temple. Christ has always been. The fulfillment of everything that was symbolized in that old temple. And now that Jesus has been raised, he is building his temple. And you say, well, how is Jesus building his temple? Where is it? Well, it's right here. It's you. He is rebuilding it with living stones, Peter says, not with dead stones. He's building it with believers who have the Holy Spirit within them. So when we, in the name of Jesus Christ, get together, we form every Lord's Day a new covenant temple. And the Spirit of God is pleased to come in here. And as we saw last week, we should be glad we don't have to buy a Delta ticket every week and go to Jerusalem to worship God. But that God comes and meets with us. This is what he told the woman, the Syrophoenician woman. I mean, uh, excuse me, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He told the Samaritan woman, it's not going to be on your mountain that you Samaritans worship on. And it's not going to be on our mountain in Jerusalem. A day is coming and now is when they who worship the father will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus has come to do, to build the new covenant temple. He's building a new vineyard. He has destroyed the old. The old was types and and shadows. It was animal sacrifices blood of a goat will never take away your sins. We don't need to reconstruct that temple. 
It's a waste of time. It is bad theology. You have the precious blood of Jesus. You don't need to go back to animal sacrifices anymore. Christ has died once and forever. And when a believer trusts in Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus becomes efficacious for that individual. And that which formerly could take away no sins in their conscience, the Old Testament worshiper knew this animal can't take away my sins. Why did they do it then? Well, one, God commanded it, but it was always to point to the coming of Christ. The death of the sheep, the death of the lamb at the hands of the priest in the temple was to point to Christ. The temple is destroyed because of the wickedness of God's people, but also to make way for the new covenant temple, which is you, which is people in China, in Africa, in South America, all over the world, wherever the name of Christ is being named and worshipped in spirit and truth, there the Lord is. And what's going to happen at the consummation of the ages is God is going to raise us all from the dead when Jesus returns at the shout of the archangel and the blast of the trumpet, Christ returns, the dead shall be raised. And we will have the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem will come down and God's people will be there. All those living stones who trusted in Jesus Christ from 2000 years ago to whenever Jesus returns, we will all be together. And the, and God will be in our midst and, and, and the lamb will be with us and there will be no need for the sun or moon any longer for God and the lamb shall be our light. We will be in the new covenant temple, the new Jerusalem. And so Jesus here is showing us how significant this transition is. They said, God forbid. But in some ways, we need to say, thank you, Lord. That we're moving to something better. Than what they had in the days of types and shadows. I got to keep moving here. So, number one, you have the destruction of the vineyard, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. Number two, you have the elevation of the cornerstone. That's found in verse 17. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is that? Excuse me. What then is this that is written? And then he quotes. This is the psalm we sang. Remember, boys and girls, the second song we sang in this service, Psalm 118. And we sang those last five, four stanzas, rather. Well, this is what Jesus did. He took that psalm and he is applying it to this situation. And he says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Now, this is the other point that Jesus wants you to see. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. But number two, Christ is going to be elevated. Christ, Jesus, who's going to be rejected by men, despised, forsaken, put on the cross. He will be elevated by the Father. The Father will raise Jesus from the dead bodily, bodily from the dead. Forget this liberalism that says Jesus is just raised in the minds of the disciples. Jesus is just raised in our consciousness. Jesus is just spiritually raised. You know, now forget it. It's bodily raised from the dead. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead and he was seated bodily at the right hand of the Father. Christ is going to be elevated. He is going to be exalted. His humiliation is going to climax in his crucifixion and in his death. 
But when that third day arrives in the morning, his humiliation is now and forever over. All that now is, is Christ exalted. Christ the King exalted. He will make an appearance unto men for 40 days and then comes the enthronement, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's taking Psalm 118 and he said, what did that psalm mean? What did the psalmist mean when he said that the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? He's saying, that is me. That is Jesus. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that psalm was pointing us to Jesus Christ. Even a thousand years before Jesus even came to this world, it was speaking of Christ, his humiliation. That's the rejection part. But what what is the corner, the chief cornerstone? That's the chief stone in any building. Okay, that the chief cornerstone is the one by which every other stone is going to be measured. And it's important that you have a perfect cornerstone, otherwise the whole building can be wonky. And Christ is that perfect cornerstone for us. And Christ, having humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, was exalted that whosoever would believe on Jesus Christ should not perish. It's at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Now here's the final point, because we've got to come to the table. You have the destruction of the vineyard, you have the elevation of Christ, the elevation of the cornerstone, and then finally you have this call, I think really as a call to the gospel in many ways, for the audience, both then and now, to fall on Christ. To fall on the stone. This stone that Christ, this stone which has been exalted, this stone that has been raised from the dead. Jesus says in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone, that is, everyone who falls on the person, the name, the work, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, everyone who falls on the totality of Jesus's person and the totality of Jesus's work on that person, that person will be broken to pieces. The old man, the sinner that we are, will be broken on Christ. And yet, he says, on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, I do believe what is being taught here by Jesus is that it is a humbling thing to come to Christ because we, when, when we come to Christ, we are broken of our pride. We are broken of our self-righteousness. I can't come truly to Jesus Christ unless I say I am the chief of sinners. You see, that, that, that was the thing in the, the lesson of the, the Pharisee and the publican at the temple. The, the publican came as a broken man. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He was willing to fall on Christ and be broken. But the self-righteous Pharisee was unwilling, wasn't he, to be broken? He said, oh, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I, I'm not like sinners and adulterers and thieves and corrupt people. I tithe of everything I get. I, I fast twice a week. And Lord, oh, God, how I thank you. I'm not like the publican in the back there. And Jesus says that's the guy that went home unjustified. He was not broken by his sins. He was not broken by Christ. If you really come to Jesus Christ 
truly, rightly, savingly, you'll always have to come as a sinner in need of grace. You'll always have to come as really a desperate person. You know, the Bible doesn't define faith all that often. You know what it does? It gives you pictures of faith more often than a definition of it. Have you ever noticed how almost embarrassingly broken people are who come to Christ? Isn't it interesting that very few Jews were broken before Jesus? But notice how desperate you take the blind man who is told to be quiet. And yet he cries out, you know, all the more son of David, have mercy on me. You take the woman who's the Syrophoenician woman whose child is demon possessed and the disciples are putting her off. And, and, and even Jesus says, you know, it's not good to give the children's bread to dogs. She and, and but she comes and she says, I'm willing to be a dog. I'm willing to be broken. Uh, I, I'm 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 willing to come on your terms. Um, the, the, the Roman soldier who had every earthly reason to be proud and self-righteous, he's serving the greatest country in the earth. He's an officer in that military. They just pretty much wipe out anybody who they want to wipe out. They rule. They're the king. They're top. And yet he says, I'm not worthy, Jesus, to have you come under my roof. And Jesus says, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. All of these people, they come with humility. They come with a sense of, of brokenness, of lostness. And yet they, they're, they're the ones who are healed. They're the ones who become whole. And it's the same with you and me. We will never be made right with God if we do not acknowledge the significant problem of our life and universe. Namely, that we are gross sinners before God. And we need to fall on the person of Christ. You get this sense of desperation. That, you know, the woman... Who had the bleeding problem? What does she do? She she thinks if I can just touch the edge of his garment, that's that's faith in action. She's she's just saying here, I've reached this point where I have gone to every physician I know. I have spent all my money uh, trying to find this cure. This is this is my only hope. Jesus is my only hope the, you think about the, the lepers who stood at a distance and they cried out they, their only hope. Was that Christ would say the word and tell them that they were healed. Those are the terms that Christ sets before us today, before you. If you've never come to faith in God or faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, these are the terms you have to. It's an unconditional surrender. You have to acknowledge your brokenness. You have to acknowledge your pride. You have to acknowledge your self-righteousness. You have to acknowledge that what you thought was good and righteous was, is nothing before God because God sees it as filth and as unrighteousness by nature. You know, this is why Paul didn't understand the gospel for so long until he was converted by the spirit of God. You know, he thought, I'm a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. When it comes to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm in the most zealous of all the sects of Judaism. I'm pursuing this righteousness to the nth degree to where I'm persecuting everybody that is wrong, quote unquote, in my eyes in terms of their orthodoxy, putting them in jail, even even when it comes to voting, whether to kill them or not, I'm voting kill them and I'm holding the coats for those that are stoning them. And then Paul tells us, then I met Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus. And everything that I had hoped in, everything that I was trusting in for my for my righteousness, for my standing with God, I was broken. I fell on the stone of Christ. 
And I cried out, oh, Lord, who are you? And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul had to learn. It's not how good a Presbyterian you are. It's not all the Sunday school classes you've taught. It's not the offerings that you put in the plate. These these things are important as aspects of our faith, but we do not derive our righteousness from these things. Our righteousness comes by Christ and Jesus alone. My righteousness comes by looking to Christ in faith. He's my righteousness. He's my standing before God. I have no righteousness. I'm going to hell if I go as a Presbyterian minister. But if I go as one in Christ, then I'm safe. From the wrath that is to come. Then I am righteous in the sight of God. Even though I'm still a sinner. Eustace et peccator. Luther said. Justified and yet a sinner. You have to come on the terms of Christ. Have you come to Christ? If you've never come before. I want to invite you in the name of Jesus Christ. To put your trust in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Recognize your sinfulness of your sins. Recognize you have no righteousness. But look at the goodness of Christ. Christ loves sinners. He receives broken people. People who feel like they have no hope. Maybe maybe you, for years you were walking in the way of self-righteousness. But God has been pressing down, down, down on your conscience more and more. You're no longer comfortable. With yourself, because you see yourself increasingly as a sinner. This is not a bad place to be. The psychiatrist may tell you, you you shouldn't have these dark thoughts of yourself. But I would suggest to you that it might be your salvation in coming. (laughs) That you see that you are a wretched person. And that Christ is a great Savior. Amen.